As Paul read this morning, our passage is taken from 1 Timothy, if you want to turn back there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and the first seven verses. As I study the Bible, I really love those big picture verses, you know, like Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Or Deuteronomy 6, do you remember that one? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And I treasure those peek behind the scenes passages like in Daniel chapter 9 where God tells us that it will be until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I love these big handle verses. And so today I want to bring us one of those. It's a why we do what we do verse, and it's verse number five in 1 Timothy chapter one. Let me read this again for us. But the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is a wonderful verse deserving our meditation because it influences both how and why we teach and preach the word or study the word, as well as what we should prioritize and focus on. It also can help us examine the channels of love in our heart for God and for others. We'll look more into that later today. But I hope after today's sermon, 1 Timothy 1.5 will become one of those special go-to verses for you, influencing the what and why of what you do. First, let's consider the context of this passage. The author, of course, is Paul, the apostle. And most scholars date the writing of the epistle, like the other pastoral epistles, sometime after he was released from prison in Rome around 62 to 64 AD. Paul is writing to Timothy, whom he calls his true child in the faith, his right-hand man, so to speak. Faithful Timothy, what a blessing he was to the Apostle Paul. As I was preparing this sermon, I thought of when I was in Mongolia and Bilthge was by my side. Maybe some of you remember that name. Or in Indonesia more recently, and there was El Pasti. And praise God, El Pasti texted me this morning and said, uh, are you preaching? I'm praying for you. (laughs) Just two hours ago. Paul had already sent Timothy to several places, like Thessalonica, Corinth, and Philippi. But here, in this context, he's asking Timothy to stay behind while he goes on ahead In fact, he has to urge Timothy to do this because there were some problems in the church at Ephesus. This is a church that Priscilla and Aquila had helped start a decade earlier. And it's a church that Paul himself had pastored in for three years or approximately six years prior to the writing of this epistle. 
You know, sometimes God calls people to stay in churches that are less than ideal in order to help the church. It appears that's the case with Timothy, but Timothy needed a little urging to do this. I think he would have much more preferred to travel on with Paul than to stay behind and take care of problems. But this is what Paul needed him to do. You see, sometime after Paul had left Ephesus, within those six years that went by, some false teachers had risen up in the church. Paul had prophesied of this in Acts chapter 20. As he gathers the the Ephesian elders together, he tells them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things, twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine the elders? They're looking at each other, kind of like Jesus' disciples during the Last Supper. Surely not I. Or it reminds me of Moses' speech in Genesis 31, where he assembles all the elders together only to say, I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way. Then he goes on to teach them a song. It starts out in a beautiful way. Ascribe greatness to God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. But then it goes on to say, but they have acted corruptly toward him because of their defect, a perverse and crooked generation, foolish and unwise people. He taught them to sing this song. I'm kind of glad we don't sing that one in Sunday school. But the prophecies happen just as Moses and Paul said, because God's word always comes to pass. Now it appears after Paul had been released from prison in Rome, he made his way back to Ephesus. And after removing a couple rotten apples from the church there, Alexander and Hymenaeus, seen later in this chapter in verse 20 and also in 2 Timothy, he hands them over to Satan to chew on and then prepares to move on to Macedonia. But he knows that many bad seeds have been sown. And that the influence of these false teachers still influences the people in Ephesus. So he asks Timothy, rather he urges Timothy to stay behind and do the necessary weeding, we could say, that will doubtless be necessary. And make sure that false and misguided teaching does not continue as he helps to establish new leadership that would be able to teach and lead the people with integrity and God-pleasing goals. What is it that these misguided teachers were focusing on? If you look in verses 3 and 4, we see that they were caught up with strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. Strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. Sounds kind of like the Mormon church, doesn't it? The strange doctrines were likely Gnostic in background, and the myths 
may have been intertestamental or apocryphal stories. The genealogies were doubtless Jewish in nature. These things were all the rage. Men were taking pride and wasting time on the wrong things. Like, who's your daddy? I tried looking up some of these myths that they may have been teaching, and what I found was very fanciful indeed. Talk about demons named chaos in the form of a leviathan, giant deers and lions living in mythical forests. These myths were slightly entertaining, not too much, kind of like the Noah movie that came out last year. But they were definitely not edifying. What was the result of this misguided teaching? We see in verse 4 that speculations were arising. Questionings, some versions state it. Fruitless discussions and doubtless controversies and quarrels also. For false teaching doesn't lead to clarity and truth, but to division and ultimately spiritual deadness. So, Paul urges Timothy multiple times to avoid this like the plague. In chapter 4 of this epistle, verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I was asking myself, what might have been a fable fit only for old women? So I did a little digging, and one possible um, option is what the Jews call hoopah trees. Has anybody heard of a hoopah before? It's a rectangular canopy that they put above the bride and the groom during the ceremony. But when they build this, they take branches and weave them together. Where are these branches taken from? Well, when a child's born they'll plant a tree. And then when they get married, they'll take branches from that tree and weave them into the hoopah and branches from the other tree. And I can kind of imagine grandmas getting excited about this fable, saying this will surely bless your marriage and make it strong. It may have been entertaining, but it was not the word of God. In chapter 6, Paul says... First Timothy, verses 3 through 5. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Then in uh, verses 20 through 21, he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is so-called knowledge. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns of men who will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth to myths. This problem seems to have been widespread at the time. It was the 
like I said, the rage of the day. Therefore, he must warn Titus as well, who was ministering on the island of Crete, saying, speaking of the many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. Men who must be reproved severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. If we understand the context of the times, we, it makes even more sense why Paul so soberly admonished Timothy to be preaching the word. Right? To not be trying to entertain or amaze with myths and such. My dad calls such sermons Times Magazine sermons. They may entertain, but they do not edify. What was motivating these wayward teachers? What was their goal back in Ephesus, 1 Timothy chapter 1? Well, it definitely wasn't the administration of God. They weren't motivated by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which is received and advanced through faith. Nor were they concerned about really love for God or love for others. They were busy making bold claims about their ancestry and confident statements about the law, which were completely out of line. And most of all, they wanted to be esteemed teachers, teachers of the law. So there was much bad instruction and misguided goals. And it's no wonder then that Paul urged Timothy to stay behind. What was Paul's goal for the teaching that went on in Ephesus? Again, we return to our verse for today, verse 5. The goal of Paul's love or charge, his command given through Timothy to these tottering teachers was love. This was the goal. It's ironic that these men who wanted to be teachers of the law and were claiming to be followers of Christ forgot Christ's words in Matthew 22 that all of the commandments and the law and the, the prophets depend on love. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law. And Paul said the same thing in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 13. He said that love is the fulfillment of the law. So if these men in Ephesus really wanted to be teachers of the law, they should have been teaching with the same goal that Paul gives Timothy for them in verse 5. Paul, through Timothy, was charging these erring educators to give no more time to their dark hobby horses. He was calling them back to God's goal for biblical instruction, which is love. Galatians 5, 6, if you want to turn there really quick, says it very well. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, the keeping of the law that these teachers were focused on. 
but what? Faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's the true expression of faith is love. Love for who? Whom? Love for God and love for man, just as Jesus taught. And what kind of love? Agape love. Not eros love, not phileo love, or storge love. These were the three other kinds of love described in the Greek language. Maybe you haven't heard of storge love before. I don't think it's found in the New Testament. But it's an affectionate type of love that occurs usually among family members. It's not because they do anything. It's because who they are. You're connected to them, so you feel storge love for them. And then there's eros love, from which the word erotic comes from. It's about passionate love, sexual love. And then phileo love, which we all know refers to brotherly love, often exhibited in close friendships. This is the love that David and Jonathan exhibited for each other. It's the kind of love where you feel camaraderie for someone else. You feel harmony towards them. But the highest form and last form of love is agape love. Agape love doesn't require that we feel harmonious vibes towards people. Phileo love does. Agape love is the love that God commands us to have toward everyone, including those people whose personalities clash with ours. If God had just called us to phileo love, it would be a different story. But his love is higher. We're to love even those who hurt us and treat us badly and those who are hostile toward our faith. Agape love doesn't sit back. It goes. It sends. It extends. It's John 3.16 kind of love. Agape love thinks of others before and above oneself just as Jesus so many times demonstrated. Agape love obeys. Do you remember Jesus' words in John 14, 15? If you agape me, you will keep my commandments. And agape love expresses itself not with word or tongue only, but indeed in truth. Finally, and I want you to begin to grapple with this, agape love does not spring forth from natural affection. It doesn't spring forth from hormones or family connections or harmonious vibes. But what does verse 5 say is its source, its channel? It springs forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. These are its channels through which it flows. And as Pastor Martin often says, words are there for a reason. So later we're going to look at these three channels through which agape love flows. Sadly, when we look at our world today, much of the teaching and preaching in churches is not so much about agape love, but about self-love, right? What can God do for my life? Or as Pastor Martin often says, how can people say, how can I live my best life now? I'm so thankful that we have good teaching and a good pastor here that warn us of these false focuses. Our goal for 
coming together here this morning isn't for entertainment. It's not for emotion. And it's not even for what some more mature Christians becomes their chief aim. That is knowledge. Adding knowledge upon knowledge. Have you ever seen this? People will go to Bible study after Bible study, consuming teachings full of interesting facts, gathering all these trivial tidbits. They become spiritually fat and strangely inactive. Tragically, greater love for God and man remains unstimulated in their life. Now, I want to clarify that knowledge is not bad, right? You read the Proverbs and it says that knowledge should be gathered. It's important. And we know in Second Peter verse chapter 1 that it's to be added to our faith. It says right away, add to your faith knowledge so that you will not become unfruitful. But if we take a look at the end of Peter's list there in 2 Peter chapter 1, what is the final quality that we should be aiming towards? Love. And immediately preceding that, brotherly kindness. <laughs> you see, knowledge as an end in itself is not our goal. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge as an end itself only puffs up. So again, may the goal of our teaching, our studying, both personal and corporately, be love for God and man from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, let's try to apply this a little more personally. How are we doing here at LVC? In light of 1 Timothy 1.5. Pretty good, I think. Love for God and what he has done on the cross is expressed repeatedly by Pastor Martin in heartfelt ways. And Pastor Martin's desire to see our Savior face to face one day and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, comes from his desire sprung out of love for God, not fear. Or duty. As for the West Institute and its related programs, equipped to counsel, the morning study, these aren't simply about knowledge, but how that knowledge builds our admiration for God and His Word, His sovereignty and goodness, our trust in Him, our love and commitment for the family and for those hurting around us. In Sunday school, Every week, Rich Tremaine literally bows down on his knees with our children as a concrete expression of his love for God. Jason Nelson faithfully loves our youth, a challenging ministry at times, I'm sure. And he leads us week after week in heartfelt praise for the God whom we love. Wade Hampton is loving the Father early every morning as he cleans this house of worship. Small group leaders like Don Barnes and are loving their brothers and sisters, and I see this in their hearts and hear it in their prayers. It's real. Ladies are loving and encouraging ladies. 
People in our congregation like Luke Finley and Brian Duncan are loving Wyo Techers. Cowboys like Rex, Kyle, and Lane are loving Cowboys. Preschools are being loved in the ranch preschool. Then there's the Snowy Mountain Love Lodge. There's the White Stone Outfitters, Collegiate Ministry, and FCA, our international and stateside missionaries. And I'm probably forgetting somebody or something, but if I am, know that we love you. Right, Doug? There is a lot of love going on here at LVC. But having patted ourselves on the back, let us always remain vigilant in keeping this goal, love for God and others, before us in what we do. It's kind of like exercise. If you don't keep at it, it goes away. You can't just coast. So as we teach and preach as we interact with each other in the coffee shop, as we talk with our kids, let us be asking ourselves, how can this lesson or sermon or the words I'm speaking increase our love for God and for man? Now moving on to even more personal application. How about you as an individual? Turn the spotlight on yourself and your heart. Is love the motivation for what you do. You may say, David, well, I'm neither a preacher nor a teacher. So this sermon, does it really apply to me? But let me ask you one question. Are you a parent? If so, then you have been given a teaching role like none other. Dad, Are you helping your kids learn to love God more and more? Mom, can they observe your love for others in your words? Feel it in your heart. See it in your actions. You are teaching others your goal in life. Are we taking every possible opportunity through the day to praise our God before our children? As we rise up, as we walk, as we lie back down? Have you ever taken your sons outside at night to look at the stars and say, look at how awesome our God is? When you get together and, and you, around Easter or Christmas and you read of all these fulfilled prophecies, do you take time to say to your kids, isn't God amazing? Isn't he sovereign? Others may say, David, I'm not a teacher or a preacher or a pastor or a parent. Well, may I ask you a question? Are you a student? If so, what is your goal for being instructed? Is it connected to your love <clears throat> for God? Is, that your aim, is, your, is love for God your aim for being educated? It's not just for people that go to the West Institute, you know. Are you loving God with all your mind? Are you preparing to serve him with your occupation? May love be your goal as well in your learning. And then for those of us who are neither teacher, preacher, parent, nor student, please realize you're still involved in teaching and instructing yourself in the books you read, in the sermons you listen to, in the quiet times you spend. Is your love for God ever increasing? Is this the goal of what you do and why you do it?
Finally, I want us to ask ourselves a second question. How about our love for others? Is it growing? Or does it just reach a level and then we stop? If your love for others is not being strengthened by the teaching, preaching, and studying in this church, then we've got a problem. Something's wrong. And if it's not the teacher or the preacher, then we may need to examine our own life. We may need to do a heart correction, a conscience cleaning, and a faith check. Because we may have ignored these three important channels. They're not just words. This is spiritual reality. Something may be blocking these channels so that agape love, I'm not talking about eros, I'm not talking about phileo, but agape love is blocked. So let's look now briefly at these three biblically identified channels through which agape love flows for God and man. The first one being a pure heart. You see, our hearts are like containers And if they're burdened down by worldly desires and impure passions, we end up chasing the things of the world. And this diminishes our love for God and man. That's why 1 John 2.15 tells us, do not love the things of the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's displaced for other things. In James 4, 1 and 2, a staple verse in the West Institute reveals that the source of quarrels and conflicts amongst us, i.e. not loving one another, is that there are pleasures waging war in our members, in our hearts. We lust and we do not have. We commit murder, i.e. we hate those around us. We are envious and cannot obtain, so we quarrel and fight. I like how John Henderson puts it. Some, a good quote I got out of the Equipped to Counsel class. Listen, people who love the world fight people who love the world over things of the world. People who love the world fight with people who love the world over things of the world. Therefore, Paul tells us to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts. Not just sexual lust, but all sorts of lust. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from what? A pure heart. A pure heart. Truly blessed are the pure in heart. As for the second channel of agape love, a good conscience, The Apostle Paul writes of its importance many times, even within this epistle. Three more times in Timothy, he warns of men who have rejected a good conscience and have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. He gives Timothy a requirement for deacons that they must be men of a clear conscience. And in chapter 4, he speaks of hypocritical liars who have been seared in their conscience. We don't talk too much about conscience anymore, But the Bible does. It's a biblical word. Paul himself diligently guarded his own conscience. In 2 Timothy 1.3, he writes, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. In Acts 24.16, he says, I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience. 
both before God and before men. And in 2 Corinthians 4.2, he says he's renounced hidden things of shame, commending himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. How's your conscience? It's very important if agape love is going to flow through your life. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews, the author, requests prayer that they may maintain a good conscience in Hebrews 13, 18. And, first, and Peter exhorts the readers of his first epistle to keep a good conscience. You see, maintaining a good conscience is really essential for loving both God and man. Think of Adam. He's, he's hiding behind the bush. Why? Because his conscience is shattered. How did this affect his love for God? Did it affect his love for man? You see, the heart burdened by guilt finds it difficult to both love and worship. Therefore, God said, if you are at the altar about to give your gift and you remember someone has something against you, your heart is burdened, your conscience is burdened, go, leave your gift, settle that first, then come back and worship me. Come back and love me. God knows that for pure worship, good worship, loving worship, we need to have a clear conscience, a good conscience. Thankfully, there's comfort and instruction for us in Hebrews 10.22 where it says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Third and lastly, the third channel through which agape love flows is seen in 1 Timothy 1.5 is a sincere faith. This is something that Paul recognized in Timothy. Remember, in 2 Timothy, it says that it was in Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, as well. Another encouragement to mothers that your faith influences your children's. You see, a sincere faith in what God so lovingly did for us naturally produces agape love for him. And how can we truly love someone that we don't have faith in? That we doubt. So, let us again use the word of God. This is instruction manual to examine our own spirits. Do we have a pure heart? Or is it full of worldly things that are competing for space? Do we have a good conscience? Do we need to get some things right with God or with others? And do we have a sincere faith or are we struggling with doubts and confusion? We need to be mindful of these things if we are going to have love, agape love, as our goal, if it's going to be flowing through our lives to God and to others. In closing, I want us to take a fascinating glimpse at the condition of the church in Ephesus some 30 years after this epistle was written. Turn now to second, or Revelations chapter 2, a well-known passage. But this is fascinating. Again, this is 30 years after Paul wrote this epistle, after he left Timothy behind in Ephesus. Let's see how the church was doing. Ephesus, or sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1. 
or verses 2 and following. One and four. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. How is the Ephesian church doing 30 years later? It appears they'd been pretty successful in stomping out the false teaching. The false teaching was pretty much gone. But sadly, so was their love. It's sobering, isn't it? Because we see here that this was still the goal of our Lord for this church. The same goal that he spoke to them through the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Therefore, let us here at LVC pray that even 30 years more into the future for us, we will still be focusing on the main thing, loving God, loving others. And may the warning of Jesus to the Ephesian church goad us all on individually. In our teaching, in our small groups, in our families, and in our personal lives, may the goal of love for God and others, issuing from a pure heart, a, clean con- a good conscience, and a sincere faith, be continually before us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that you don't leave us to guess and to give our best effort in this trying and human nature to follow you, but that you you instruct us very clearly and help us to really meditate upon your words Help us to examine our own spirits, Lord, in these three areas, our heart, our conscience, and our faith, Lord. These may be clean channels, clear channels that your love flows through to people around us. Lord, help that love for you and for others to continue to be the goal here at LVC and in our individual lives. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.